Welcome to the Profitable Farmer Podcast, where it's all about increasing the profitability of your farm by working smarter, not harder. G'day everyone. Welcome once again to Profitable Farmer. I hope you're incredibly well. So it's probably been about 18 months since I caught up with Tony Cat, Director Catapult Wealth. Um, Tony and his team are um, our resident financial planning economics and succession specialists. And I was just sort of acknowledging Tony before I hit record on this interview that we're just delighted at Farm Owners Academy that whenever we send one of our clients over to get support from Tony and his team that they always get very well looked after. And, and normally, um, all things being equal, Tony, with succession, it's an unpredictable beast, <laughs> normally a really positive and constructive outcome. But great to have you back on Profitable Farmer and thanks for your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me and appreciate the support from, from, from your organisation as well. Tony um, has just shared with me that he's off on a uh, two-month family tour. Um, David Westbrook, perhaps inspired by the FOA tour, um, to um, get away from his office and, and work remotely and dust himself off probably after COVID and managing a remote workplace. Tony, you're looking forward to that trip? Oh, I am, Westy. I will be, I won't be doing taking the caravan though. I won't be taking the FOA caravan. Uh, um, yeah, but it's, um, uh, yeah, and I'm really excited actually. We're going to be two, two weeks over on the West Coast doing with, my wife has never actually been to Streaky Bay or Tummy Bay before and we're going to give her the tour of the West Coast and then circle back uh, and go cut through Albury, head to Wollongong, and then up the coast to Airlie. So um, we're, I'm, I'm glamping it, mate. Airbnb it all the way. So I am, um, uh, but it's gonna, it's gonna be, it's gonna be nice just to have a change of scenery and, uh, and, and see parts of Australia that I've never seen before, which will be exciting. I did a podcast with Sam Johnson and Michaela, our EA, the other day, Tony, and we talked about professional conduct and I think being from professional service firms we learn you know how to manage our diary to-do lists emails um a lot of those disciplines perhaps that that a farmer who hasn't had exposure to professional service firms they might not have learned them um how is it managing a team of over 60 people and and where would your business be without diary discipline and email discipline and how structured are you and how you manage your time and your diary and your task list just out of interest it's funny i um you know i have an old saying around here jeremy that says you show me your diary and i'll show you your your priorities um is that i am extremely structured around my diary and and basically even to the point where i book phone calls or um you know and and then i just um, i just run off that diary um all day all week all month and um you know it's important because we you know we've got to value our time we have to value other people's times and so booking in phone calls and that means we're not playing phone chasey all day and things like that so yeah we're pretty big on i use the word just productivity how are you just getting the most out of your day um, and, and how are the people around you getting the most out of their day? So we we walk out at, you know, 5 p.m. hopefully every night and go, that was a good day, you know. So that's all I ask. How do you know you've had a successful day? Have you got a tip for our farmers who um, quite a few of which probably don't have a diary or operate <laughs> to a, a documented task list? What um, What would you say to someone who might not have those sorts of practices around how they make the most of every day? 
Oh, look, I religiously um, will just sit there for five minutes, you know, at the end of my day, planning the next day. Um, That is probably my number one secret is that, okay, and and I'll always do the hardest task first, that eat the frog book. Um, You know, I, you know, that while I'm fresh, while I'm energetic, while my brain's in gear early, I like to knock off that big task and um, early first so that at least if nothing else in my day goes right, <laughs> I did that one thing, mate. So pre-pre just pre-setting, you, you you go to bed, you know, you just know what your next day's you got. Um, you're organised, you wake up, you bounce, and you get the hardest task done would be my 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 advice. Yeah, so that book, Eat That Frog by Brian Tracy, it's um, a really good read on time management and personal productivity. Yeah. Tony, um, this is actually an opportunity for me to reflect on and probably link up my last five or six podcasts. Um, I get to connect with you on the economy, on interest rates, on um, things like land values and and debt Mm. strategy, and and then we get to launch into conversations around aligning families and succession. So Mm -hmm. thanks for humouring me while I kind of get to go back over and reflect on my last five or six um, podcasts, but it's just wonderful to be able to do this with you. Easy. No, happy to go. You you lead the way. So firstly, um, I'm going to put it out there, and this might just be my view, but three months ago, Mm -hmm. incredibly low interest rates, the the three-year, five-year, seven-year fixed were also pretty favourable. And I don't think many of us actually stopped and thought maybe I should lock some of that in. I don't know. But all of a sudden we see ourselves with one interest rate jump and now it looks like the three, five, seven years are factoring in where we're off to um, around sort of the next few years of interest rate increases. What are you seeing now compared to a few months ago? And what, what do you think will unfold for us now on the interest rate conversation? Yeah, it's an interesting. I've been through this probably, I don't know, what about doing this job for 30 years? I've probably seen this three or four times, Jeremy, where um, I, I think we're at peak interest rate fear right now. Um, and, and the RBA has particularly used a mechanism I've seen used again in their playbook, which is called jaw burning. So they talk up interest rates. <laughs> they use their jaw and they have talked and talked and talked and talked and if you listen very carefully to, to the, the RBA's language, they use um, language that on what we might do this, we could do that. We're running out of patience um, with inflation. And, and ultimately, they've only put up interest rates once. And I, I think that the RBA are playing chicken with inflation on one side and recession on the other. And they are very, very aware of the game they're playing. And the reason why the inflation argument is different to the 1980s and is different to the 1990s is inflation, I would argue, 80% of the inflation we're seeing today is coming from what I call supply-side inflation. So supply-side inflation is through, you know, the price of petrol, which everyone wants to complain about at the moment, which is not driven by demand. It's driven by Ukrainian-Russian supply-side issue. The price of steel, the price of timber. Uh, so the price of buildings gone from X thousand dollar per square meter to probably gone up fifty percent. Um, you know those things. The the cost of the freight cost of getting something in from China. Um, you only got to look at how many ships are offshore. I don't know if you've ever seen. You know the old you know, the flight radar with the airlines. You can actually do it with ships. And I think ten percent of the world's goods is sitting in ships outside China at the moment. Um, 
because they can't with with Beijing and Shanghai COVID issues. So, you know, these sort of things are not going to be solved by interest rates going up. And so we we they have to be very careful what game they are playing. The only thing that's demand driven at the moment it was housing. So housing price, I get it. They they were out of control. The RBA was very focused on trying to pull them back in, and and they have they have talked up interest rate expectations to the point where already Sydney and Melbourne prices are coming off. Um, you know, Adelaide's been holding up pretty well, but the, there's there is peak fear out there at the moment, and 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 it's funny. Um, so I think they've achieved what they need to, Jeremy, without actually doing anything. Like they've raised rates once, and and so I think we're going to get into this wait and see approach. Therefore, they're factoring in the markets are factoring in eight interest rate rises in the next two years. I, I call them BS on that. Um, I think we might see three. I reckon it might get to one percent, one point one, one point one five percent. I very much sit in the camp. Commonwealth Bank's economist in their way they see the world is probably more aligned with my world. Um, where you'll see a very slow, staggered, measured approach to increasing interest rates. Um, and and even like Macquarie's view of the world is that rates might go all the way up to 2%. If, but if they go hard early, they reckon they're going to come all the way back down to 0.1 within two years because they'll, over, they'll overcook both ways. So, I, I mate, I'm, I'm in the view that um, certainly not fixing rates. I think we're at peak interest rate fear. I think the long term that five and ten year rates are going to start to slide backwards, um, and um, you know that the housing market will stay cool for a while. But they want to, they, as I said, they don't want to, they don't want to play overcook this where they where suddenly we're talking about recession, which they are talking about in the US at the moment, which is a problem. So sorry, that's a long winded answer, but I, I I hope I'm getting my view clear. Yeah, no, that's spot on. Um, did that notion of eight interest rate rises come from America? Is that what they're um, yeah, they're talking over there and they're talking over there? And do we always follow them, or do we not necessarily always follow them? You're suggesting three, not eight. Um, yeah, I, uh, look, I, I think it's. I think it's as I said. It's the world is such a different place to the 1980s and 1990s now, where you know the level of debt we have at all sorts of different levels is 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 completely different and don't forget the governments themselves have a lot of debt they're not going to bankrupt themselves trying to put interest rates up so you know they I, I don't know I, I i think that they um this inflation discussion is is interesting because the way that what we have to be very careful of in australia is i call it the the, the neg we've the negative wealth effect. When you've got housing prices increasing, everyone feels good, confidence is going well, you actually get a wealth effect where people go, hey, you know, let's put in the pool or let's let's do a reno or buy a couch and everyone's feeling better. It's a it's a positive sentiment. But what we're fast going to enter into Australia, and I reckon it'll happen quicker than people think, where people go, yeah, I'm feeling quite negative about the world and the world's imploding and I'm not going to go spend any money. And you watch how fast retail numbers start to implode a bit, and that's the chicken and the egg thing with the markets, why the share markets are bouncing around at the moment, is um, if we really see a, 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 a headwind in, in an economic sense, then the share markets are going to hate it. And um, uh, and so, yeah, I, I think that that negative wealth effect, we've got to be a bit careful about what that does to confidence and, and the knock-on effect to spending. You mentioned you've seen three of these in your career or thereabouts. Yeah. Um, 
What's different about this one? And I guess I'm, it's a loaded question. The level of debt that we carry as a nation, is that concerning or is that something that we'll move mm. forward with and, and carry? No, I don't. I, nothing. Um, it's probably not concerning in that um, there's different types of debt. There's productive debt and there's non-productive debt. The thing that probably is very, very good for me, Jeremy, at the moment is the the status of our banking here in Australia. Like the banking environment is very, very strong here in Australia at the moment. So I don't lose any sleep over a 2008 style scenario where we get, you know, all this, um, you know, low like this borrowing that's that's basically um, delinquent. Um, I, I don't lose any sleep over that at all. And and I, I think that the, uh, the banks are all in good state. I think RBA is in good state. I think they can manage it within a certain range. But we've, we've consistently over 40 years of my career gone from 17% interest rates to 0.1. The trend has been down the whole way through all the good economic times and the bad economic times. I... I don't think anything's going to change. I don't think we're, you know, so I, we, are we heading back to mortgage mortgage rates of five, six, seven percent? No, we're not. And it's statistically, I spoke to a couple of bankers recently, Jeremy, where if we end up back at even at 4.75% interest rates on your mortgage, 60% of home loans in Australia would be in stress. They're not going to get anywhere near that number. Yeah, I think to your point, um, we're all acutely aware of what happens if interest rates go up, um, you know, RBA and others in particular. So I appreciate your comments. Now, you mentioned carrying debt. Did you predict or did, do you think anyone really thought that over the last two or three years we just see such um, a significant uplift in land values and real estate um, values? I think that what uh, the short answer is no, mate, and, and I don't think anyone saw that coming, is there was probably two things at play, though, one is the government, rightly or wrongly, with the benefit of hindsight, overstimulated that housing market because they were worried, they were staring in the abyss of this is what's going to happen and they threw the kitchen sink at it and that caused a bit of a, you know, a massive rush, I'll call it. It's like some the way I've tried to work through the described Jeremy COVID is it's like you've got a two-inch pipe and there's so much spending going through a two-inch pipe and it's a certain flow and everybody's got options. They can go overseas or, you know, you can renovate your house and you've got certain things to choice suddenly what we did with that two-inch pipe we made it a one-inch pipe because we didn't have options anymore but but then then not only did we have the same amount of spending going through the one-inch pipe we actually decided to put government stimulus through the one-inch pipe and the pressure on that one-inch pipe was outrageous and i think that's what now we're releasing the one-inch pipe back to a two-inch pipe overseas travel you can move around we're going to get immigration again we're going to get lots of choices I think the pressure is going to come off and, and the housing thing will slowly, unwind, not unwind, I think it'll calm down. But the one thing that people forget is that one of the big drivers of housing prices is the cost of materials. Like you look at your alternatives, the, you know, the well, when it costs me now, you know, X hundred thousand dollars more to build a house because of labour costs, because of shortage of supply, et cetera, et cetera. Well, now I'm better off paying $200,000 more for that house down the road that's already built. That's what you're going to do. And so we need the material costs, the labour costs and the and so on to calm down before we – that will that will slow that housing market down substantially. So that, that was a big, big driver of property prices going up. Have um, gross indebtedness per household, has that increased 
over the last few years with COVID or have people actually knocked off their credit card debt um, home loan, haven't been able to travel, so they've they've actually got stronger balance sheets um, yeah. irrespective of the land value or the real estate value uplift. Do you think fair households are generally in a stronger position or not? There's probably a couple of things. The savings rate's not bad at the moment. The savings rate's about 10%, but there's two ways you can look at that is that the savings rate's quite high. I think it's personally only because they couldn't spend the money. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, because, but people are going, oh, well, the savings rate's high. That means that people are going to be able to afford their, you know, extra mortgage repayments. But so I, I think that savings rate is a little bit of a, a mute point. And the only other thing is that our, the other good measure that I look at is the income to debt ratio. And so that's that's actually not at a terrible level at the moment, mate. It is. It I don't in the core the gross debt. Um, I don't really follow that number. I look at what the ratio to your wage is, and it's it's back at a level pre pre COVID. That's not too bad. So I I don't I, property prices have a habit of um, particularly in certain uh, in Adelaide where people get anchored. Is is an anchoring sort of philosophy there where. If people pay a million dollars for their house and suddenly the market turns against them, they don't want to sell it for less. So they just don't sell it. They just dig in and, well, we'll make this work and we'll hold on, hold on, hold on. And But if they get $1 million and one, oh, no, we'll get out. It's it's a funny psychological thing that people do with their house. And so you, you tend to not see housing prices fall dramatically um, overall because people don't tend to want to sell at a loss. So bringing this back to farming, We've seen land values double yeah. or thereabouts, um, which probably means we can take on more debt. Um, should we? And um, I think it does allow us to, to look at expansion more actively, um, even though the neighbours' farms jumped and, and probably look at intensifying or investing into our farms. Um, what would you say um, on that? So, so a couple of things to be very, very mindful of is the banking environment has changed a lot over the last five years. And so, you know, I think you have to be very, very careful of even, I know you'll say this rudely to probably a lot of your listeners, is that be careful how old you are even. Like, you know, there, there's a certain age issue here that creeps in with some of the bank thinking. And and the banks now are just not lending on asset value anymore. It is, it is, it is an income-driven cash flow conversation that, you, your farm could double, but that doesn't mean you're going to get a loan. And and so and and the bank wants to know what is your plan to repay this money, and and how are you going to do that? And so the banking environment has completely changed since the Royal Commission from an asset-driven model to an income-driven model, and and a cash flow model. And so just because you can get well, I wouldn't even I would say be very careful about what you think you can get, even though your house your your land value has gone up. And um, the second thing that I'm very conscious of is, is what is how what level are the banks stress testing it at? Like you know, getting a loan. So they, at the moment, I think it's five percent. Um, you know, can you afford it? So again, that might knock you out of the equation. Um, uh, and and ultimately, you know, as you as your land value goes up and you see the farm. I mean, I think I saw something. I heard something at Karamolka out of Maitland sold for twelve and a half thousand dollars an acre recently. Um, you know, there's a $10 million check for 750 acres. Um, what does that mean for your succession plan? What does it mean for, why, why are we doing this? Like, what is the strategic intent here? And, and does that mean that I'm leaving with my kids a, a debt to pay or my grandkids a debt to pay for the next 20 years, 30 years? I don't know. Um, 
your purpose has to be pretty clear about why you're doing that. So what would you say the impact of a significant uplift in land values, what impact is that having back on succession for families with on-farm and off-farm children? Well, it's the first impact that I've seen, and, I, and I, I can't remember if we mentioned this, I sort of started seeing this happen a year and a half ago, and it's only amplified now, is the farming community are divided into the haves and the have-nots. The haves have got bank support, they're getting cheap funding, they're getting, you know, very good, um, uh, they're probably well-run, well-managed, they can get HR, you know, they've got access to, to staff when they want it, and they can make money, they're making good money. And therefore, when the farm comes up next door, they can generally go and ask for six million bucks and the bank says, yep, no worries. Then the trouble with that is then then you've got the have-nots. The have-nots are probably still got some debt issues. They're probably not getting the, the, the profitability they should be getting. And this is where you guys obviously are working with them. And, and, and they're just not getting the outcomes that they probably should have. And, but they're getting stuck. And you're getting they, they can't take over the farm next door. You know, they, they can't go borrow $6 million. They, the bank's never going to give it to them. And so they can't get bigger. They can't afford to get smaller. And so, to be honest, Jeremy, I'm seeing, seeing a lot of farm turnover of some farms that are just going, you know what, we're out. And this is a pretty good price and see you later. And that has enormous ramifications for succession planning and off-farm children and all sorts. But we are seeing that in, 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 a, long, in a lot of ways. And I on land prices with the with the introduction of super fund money coming, corporate money coming into your sector, which I do not see going away for a long while, um, I think these land values are going to hold up pretty well. Um, so, I disagree. I think, I think there's real optimism in the industry yeah. that we haven't seen in a long time. Um, yeah. You know, commodity prices are strong. There has been a run of good seasons generally. Sure, we've got those challenges with supply, um, of inputs and and yeah. exactly as you mentioned, the supply-driven inflationary input costs. But, you know, on the whole, I think the industry is confident and optimistic and I take your point. I think absolutely. Yeah, it's, I mean, but then, then the challenge from a succession planning point of view, Jeremy, is where to from here? So we, we you know, we're, we're at 2,000 acres, how do we get to 4,000? And then but that, that, when you sit down and go, now getting from two to four, what does it cost us? Is a completely different conversation to what it was 10 years ago. And, and what's the impact on our debt levels? What's the impact on our cash flow? What, why are we actually doing this? And, mm. and is this the outcome we want? So, yeah, it has a significant uh, on-farm effect for a start. And then the off-farm effect, unfortunately or fortunately, however you want to look at it, the truth is the off-farm children sit down and go, well, that was an $8 million asset. Now it's a $16 million asset. Uh, how have we been looked after? Yeah. Yeah. So does that make the retention of established family farms more difficult to achieve because perhaps the expectation of off-farm children is now for their share of the 16, not their share of the eight? Yeah, it's it's, it's making it harder and harder in a, in, a, in, a, in a financial, like if you look at that core number, it's making it harder and harder, Jeremy. And I, I, I'll say that... <laughs> how do I diplomatically put this, is that we've got to continue in an off-farm. The discussion I, I try and promote is with off-farm children is what is the opportunity the farm is giving you? Like The parents are giving the opportunity to the on-farm child to farm. Let's take the numbers away. You've got it now. You've got to talk about the opportunity. How are we helping you become a doctor or a pilot or a 
a nurse or, you know, own your own um, florist shop or what is the opportunity to the off-farm children that we're giving you? Because if you make it about money, it is just a, it's a, it's a road to nowhere um, and it's not going to end in a friendly way. Um, and um, that, that's something that uh, parents grapple with, Jeremy, and it's something that they are struggling to articulate to their children of how they, they make it fair. Yeah, it's such an interesting topic because if I get to go home or I go home to the farm and I get the farm and the opportunity to farm mm. and my sibling gets a uni degree and then goes and gets into medicine, um, how is it that the older generation is supporting that doctor to succeed? Is there a, how, how would you define that support to that off-farm example? For me, it's I think it's up to the child to articulate it, to be honest, Jeremy. I think it's every opportunity is different to every single person in this planet. And 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 I challenge the kids to articulate what is opportunity to them. Like don't don't wait for the silver platter to come out. You articulate what is it might be a deposit on a house. It might be, you know, the hundred thousand dollars you need to start your new business, or what is the the start you need? And 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 it's very hard to describe on this podcast today, Jeremy, but I've probably since we last brought up, the thing I've been able to frame in my head is um, better and I do it better on a whiteboard. So next time we get together, I'll show you. But it's um, if I give you, the, if you get the opportunity to farm, what do you actually get out of that? So let's just assume that the $8 million farm, who cares if it goes to a $16 million farm, that $8 million farm you inherit from your parents, your parents farmed for 30 years, what did they get out of it? They got a super fund with a house in Adelaide and I don't know, you know, what What did they get out of it? And then they passed it to you and they passed the baton to you. What are you going to get out of it for the next 30 years? Do you know what? You might get a super farm, a house in Adelaide. I don't know how to tell me, but like, what is that? That's how I've started to frame it. Like, And then therefore, what you get out of it is not anything different to maybe what the our farm kids are going to get out of their life too. That is such an astute way to think about succession. I hadn't thought it through in that way. But if, if my prior generation um, had the legacy that they passed to me and if I want to pass on that same legacy, hmm. then what you see most family farms get is exactly what you've just described, is, is a house to live in at the beach, um, maybe a paid-off house in town um, and the ability to live on some shares. So when you take that cream off what gets passed between generations, to your point, that's not necessarily any more elaborate. It might be even less elaborate than the architect or the engineer who, yeah, what a great way to think about it. But do you know what? The off-farm child is more likely to get your parents' super fund house in Adelaide. (laughs) So if there's just two in you, two of you, Mm. you Mm. end up, with exactly with what with from the parents what they end up with. Yeah, and I guess it's still back on the farm sibling often to provide for yeah. that older generation and you know maintain that farm. And do you ever find yourself talking about the opportunity foregone for the on-farm child? They go home and they carry that lineage and that legacy and and they're the ones to pass it on so that it stays in the family yeah um my father came home and did exactly that but didn't do what he actually wanted to do i think which was to become a doctor so 
Do you, do you talk about the opportunity foregone for the on-farm children? Because the off-farm children have a lolly shop. They can choose their adventure often, can't they? Yeah. Well, I mean, and look, you do you do have to ask that on-farm child is don't do it just because you're being asked to do it either. No. Um, like, you know, you've got to, you've got to um, you know, I think some people now I've used some succession planning as 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 like a, a, a prison trap for some 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 kids, which is not okay. Um, but you're right. I mean, there is an element of um, people get nostalgic, Jeremy. People go, "Oh, I'm doing this for the family," and and I and I get it. That doesn't mean it's right or wrong. Um, but it is. You, you've got to be careful, to be honest, with that mindset to become sacrificial or, mm. um, you know, the, the play the you know dare I use the word the victim mentality. But that's that's not okay. And and um, uh, and and therefore. You, you've got to be crystal clear about why you are going into this in the first place. If I'm a young 22-year-old, am I crystal clear about my passion and my drive and why I'm doing this? Um, and do I know how I – and never get into something unless you know how you're going to get out of it too, Jeremy. That's another point I make. Is that like you might get into something and, yeah, we all change our minds. We're entitled to. As a 32-year-old, how would I get out of this situation? you see um, many succession – sequences playing out on um, commercial terms so that the younger generation has to earn the right by actually buying into the operating entity that sits on top of the farm in the same way that a junior accountant has to buy into the accounting firm in order to become a partner or a director. Do you see see that happening within a family dynamic? Yeah, it's a good question. I would only see that happening in 5 to 10% of the cases. It's very rare, to be honest. At one in ten, it's it's just the economics of it are just so massive. They mm-hmm. don't even add up um, to, for for someone to buy in on commercial terms. Um, um, you know, so yeah, the, the short answer that's probably no. I do see it on the odd occasion, but it's it's just very hard to justify on commercial terms. Um, uh, but yeah, it's it, it's an interesting one with the kids. Is um, you know, and as you've heard me probably describe, is mum and dad are the seller and the the kids are the buyer and mum and dad have to know what they're selling and the kids have to know what they're buying and how they're buying it. So since we last spoke, and for those listening, episodes 45 and 46, I interviewed Tony and we went deep into um, Tony's take on succession and what's required um, to navigate it strongly and do it well. So I encourage you to go and listen to episodes 45 and 46 of Profitable Farmer. We're not going to go back into that detail, but what has what, what other things have been your experience over the last 18 months and how has your perspective on succession evolved over that time? I think what you just shared about what the far, on-farm child actually might get to take away <laughs> into their retirement, it's a wonderful insight. Are there any others like that that have oh, I'd, I'd love to share. I've got this idea. I've got a concept, Jeremy, and I'll let you guys run with it. I want to start, um, I'm going to call it an a, a, a induction program for people who marry into a farming family. I'm going to start. It's like a club. I want to start a, a club of people because uh, I'm obviously, I'm married into a farming family and, and <laughs> I, I think there is something to be said because I come across this problem a lot. Like I have a young farmer, 22, he goes to Adelaide, he meets a girl of his dreams. I'm being stereotypical here. It could happen the other way. And I want to know, does she know what she's signing up for? <laughs> does she know what 
is involved in in the next 20 years of, of their life? Like, does she know how the farm runs? Does she know how they're going to get paid? Does she know where they're going to live? Do you know, does she know what the values are of the firm? Does she know how hard her husband slash wife has to work? You know, what what are you signing up for? Do you really know that? And that's probably where I see it regularly. Great, you're in love. <laughs> it's great and it's beautiful, but this is there is this is this is not as you would know farming is it it's a, it's it's difficult it's challenging and it's it's a certain existence that not everyone signs up for and um you, you've got to be a bit careful what you're signing up for so i don't know I, i'm i'm thinking about running a, an induction program mate so um i and i think that would stop a lot of the the trouble the reason why i see that as an issue is that i don't think enough people ask enough questions coming into a family situation like farming if you're in the honeymoon period with your new spouse why would you you don't come in with a checklist do you really no and, and it's interesting we've got a fairly thorough um business analysis review that we get all our new members to to complete and very few businesses tick more than 20 25 percent of those but i guess what, what i like about what you're saying is that for those few businesses that can allow for that um, new family member, the, the in-law, to, to have that level of clarity or certainty, they're a rare business, aren't they? They are. But but it's like prevention is better than the cure, Jeremy, from my point of view. And I just see that this is a great, this says a lot about your culture of your firm, your culture of your farm, the culture of your family. We, we you know, this is this is who we are. This is how we do things around here. And and you know what? You know, great. We we welcome these conversations. We're open and transparent about this stuff. We we want to be clear with you about what's expected of your, of your husband or your wife. You know, on the farm, and these are the amount of hours you're going to work. And this does mean Saturday and Sunday work. And you know, I, I you know, I guess every farm's different. What are you signing up for? Um, is, is pretty pretty important to know. Yep, the romance can only extend <laughs> so far. Yeah, uh, I, I agree. Now, we took on our farm this year, having had it leased out for some time, and I underestimated by about 30% what it was to take on a family farm. So I get it totally. And I think um, it, it is absolutely fair to say that um, most people marrying into a farming family significantly underestimate what it actually means. Yeah. The other the other big lesson probably out of the last 18 months, Jeremy, and, and sadly, is that I, I think it's around, I talk in, in the other episodes about a dead plan, is is that people, um, you know, in families, they often assume we'll die in chronological order. And, and, and unfortunately, that doesn't work out to be the case all the time. And, and, and as sad as that is, it's a very morbid topic. But the risk management around that on farms is really crucial and making sure you're having some open, transparent conversations with each other about what it means. And, and even people clearly do not even under it, don't, don't understand what, entities exist how do assets move what goes through the will what doesn't go through the will some people make an enormous level of assumptions about what if someone dies what happens and and i would challenge everyone out there listening to to ask more questions and be crystal clear about that so just you mentioned dead plan can you just provide a bit of context there just just (laughs) can you go just go back over a brief intro of the life plan versus the dead plan, yeah. death plan. And even I think you touched on the four key documents that that yeah. life plan needs, just just to warm people up to yeah. their so, review of those other episodes. So the, so the thing that we, we 
you know, we've tried, I think people um, in our experience, Jeremy, think succession planning, I, I think it's just a document and I think it's a point in time and it's not. It, I see two forms of, I see succession planning that comes to us is either the, I call it the break glass in case of emergency type of succession plan, something's happened. Oh, no, Tony, we need your help. That is really, really hard to do and that's very hard to, to follow. Where I find that clients, I call it preventative succession planning, great where we can sit down, everyone's on the same page, we're getting on the same page, we can have meeting after meeting, we can talk about things through, we're not under any panic, we're not under any time pressure, we're not under any um, any issue, uh, having any issues that are that are dramatic. And and when we're, we're doing preventative succession planning, we're, we're, we're trying to articulate a journey. And the first part of that journey is a dead plan. And a dead plan is, your, you know, what happens if I die? As simple as that. And what happens if my partner dies? What happens if my um, my dad dies? What happens if my like what happens in the business? And there's a lot of ramifications of people dying. It's um, what assets move where. Even as 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 brutal as this is, Jeremy, is what happens to the bank accounts? Like people, I've seen people get locked up where they don't have any cash flow for months because their bank closes, you know, freezes all their accounts. So I I, I think that that question, and you've got to assume with that dead plan. What happens if I die tomorrow? Not happens if I die in 30 years. What happens if I die tomorrow? And there'll be lots of people listening to this that go, yeah, my will's not like that. <laughs> you know, and I, I will guarantee that. The second thing, and that's not a fun conversation, but it's a necessary conversation. The second conversation we have is around the living plan. What happens if you live to your 95? What is it? And that's, to be honest, that's a beautiful thing where you live a nice, great existence we see that that how does the farm in an orderly manner or the business hand over what does that look like what's the retirement plan look like what is the management plan how are we moving tasks from one person to another what is the the you know who controls the money you know suddenly the farm's not you know making half a million dollars who controls the checkbook around that who decides where that money goes and lastly you know the land moves at some point and and when does that happen so breaking it down into bite-sized chunks like that often take some stress out of some farmers that we meet with, Jeremy, because they think it's a big topic. And it is a big topic, but breaking it down helps them sort of get their head around it a bit better in some bite-sized pieces that um, frame it up for them. So we found it, it works pretty well. Those four documents that support the living plan, can you just run through those really briefly for us? So retirement plan is, is just simply about, well, you're 65 years of age, what are you financially, how are you financially being supported? What does aged care look like, which is something they don't think about? Who, how, how are we paying our bills? Who, you know, how am I changing cars over? Where am I living? Housing is a massive issue. Because um, normally what did we find with 90% of the farm farming, the house is normally right where the sheds are, where the shearing shed is, where the, oh, but we want to stay here, kids. We're not moving. Well, hang on. This is not efficient for us, for you to be living here. Those sort of conversations come up a lot. And so retirement planning is massive. The next one we talk about is just the, the, the management plan is you have the son or daughter coming back on farm. How are you training them to take over the book work? How are you training about grain marketing? How are you training them to make decisions around crop um, you know, agronomy or decision, machinery decisions or um, harvest decisions, um, weather decisions, spraying decisions? Who is who, how are you helping transition the knowledge and the IP around your farm? And and that's and then how, who's doing what when? Who when do people actually end up taking on the decision making is really crucial. Um, the next one is is just the checkbook plan. As I said, normally 
I mean, I walk into a lot of farming families. I have a saying, if everyone's responsible, no one's responsible, Jeremy. And normally with a checkbook, there's normally one person that makes a decision ultimately on the farm. And it might be a couple, but people have a lot of input, but someone's got to make a decision. And um, and so it's how do you transition that decision-making of the money? Do we pay off debt? Do we buy more machinery? Do we buy the land next door? Do we pay ourselves more? You know, like do we suck some money out of the business to, to go and enjoy it? Um, those decisions are left with certain people. How do you make, how do you move that onto the next generation? Um, the last one is just the land. Like there, the land sits in a trust that's normally controlled by somebody or a couple of people. How how does that transfer over in a living planet and, and how does it move while people are alive um, is the last plan. So, um, yeah, I hope that gives you a flavour of, of what we go through. Yeah, it's great. Thank you. And, again, we cover it off really strongly in, in episodes 45 and 46. One thing I observe with succession is that it gets all-consuming and overwhelming. Mm. And I actually think there's a lot of farmers out there and farming families that they're putting so much into the succession bucket, they might be making it bigger than it is, and that that actually gets in the way of actually setting down a business development plan and implementing on a business plan. So yeah. you see that. I see people, there's a succession issue or the family's not aligned. It almost seems to me like growing the business stops because of this succession issue. Yeah. Do you see that? And how can people have a succession challenge or a succession issue and not have um, critical business decisions mm. that are standalone from succession mm. uh, impeded and slowed down by that process? Yeah. Yeah, look, I see it quite often, Jeremy. It, you know, I use the phrase paralysis. It just becomes a paralysis. It paralyzes um, decision-making. It paralyzes behaviour. It, it nearly is emotionally paralysing for some people where they just get stuck, um, even in their personal world. And 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 it is actually quite a dangerous thing from an emotional health point of view. So, um, you know... I always use the phrase, Jeremy, that someone planted an acorn a long time ago for you to live under the shade you're living under today. The same phrase is how we, do we continue to plant acorns? How are we supporting the next generation? How are, we, how are we continuing to create a win-win situation for everybody around us um, um, and have this abundance mentality to say we can solve this problem for everybody? And, um, you know, I'm not probably saying that all families get to that point very quickly, but I think succession planning is as much an attitude as it is an activity. I think that people need to go in with a certain um, emotional intelligence. Jeremy is probably the best word phrase I could use where great emotional intelligence means that they understand how they feel, they understand how you feel, and they understand how they make you feel. If I sit around a table with a family which have great emotional intelligence, I will guarantee you we will get some great outcomes and we will stop that paralysis from having happening because people are aware of what impact it's having on everybody else. What, what's at the core of a family with good emotional intelligence versus one with less? Is it that there is a genuine regard for others, that there's a respect and even a selflessness? Is that is that at the core of emotion or is it more than that? I, I, no, I think it's, you know, and I, I use the um, example. I think that they are, I, I, I hate the word. Everyone's, you know, people talk about opinions. Everyone's got an opinion. I, I actually prefer to, it's an acknowledgement that people have truths. 
you know, your truth might be different to my truth. And the truth is such a more positive way of looking at it. It doesn't mean you're right or wrong. It doesn't mean I'm right. It's just your truth. And and I think the word, oh, you've got an opinion. No, opinion, I think, has negative connotations. So I think it's an acknowledgement of um, their framework. And, and, and I talk about, you know, I don't know whether I've talked on this on our previous podcast about the beach ball, um, where I, I have a blow-up beach ball made in my office where it's got all different colours. So on a beach ball... On one side, pretend I was holding it up with you and and I ask you, Jeremy, I'm sitting around a family meeting and you and I aren't necessarily seeing eye to eye on something. What colours do you see, Jeremy? And you might go red, white, blue. Then you ask me, what colours do you see? Well, I see purple, green and orange. We're both looking at the same beach ball. It takes everyone around the table to see this beach ball. We need to acknowledge that everybody has a truth, everyone has a lens and so I think when people come in with that right framework and that right lens on their, you know, and that right attitude of the of, of the lens that they want to see and they acknowledge that everyone's going to have a different take on it, we get a so much better outcome. And that is, is significantly better emotional intelligence. Brilliant. So one more question for you, Tony. Yeah, mate. Why is it you do what you do? You've come from outside of agriculture and you've landed in agriculture and dedicated your life to helping farming families navigate succession, create wealth, um, you know, and transition, you know, farms between generations. Why? Oh, look, you know, I find this this industry, what I do, Jeremy, is a collision between accounting, legal, um, life coaching, like emotional intelligence, financial planning, banking, and and, and I, yes, I specialise on the wealth and the financial planning side, but, uh, you know, I came from an accounting background and, and you know, I know enough about some, some legal stuff to make me dangerous. But I, I just have seen far too many examples of where people in this, in, in your communities and, and in regional communities just don't get the right help at the right times. And, and it's, it's um, you know, it's very sad to watch the outcomes that can be, that how it rips some families apart. And, I, you know, I, I just want to try and prevent that. And if I do that two more times, if I prevent a family blowing up, and it's got nothing to do with the asset, mate. It's got to do with, you know, and I still come back, can they still have Christmas dinner together? I don't care if we're all sitting around on cardboard boxes, mate, but can we still have Christmas together? Because having families not talk to one another, having families where brothers don't speak to one another, I've seen it for decades. It's just not okay, and and I just find it just heart wrenching, mate. So I, I, it's this for me. It's not about the money. It's not about the farm. It's about the people and the relationships, and that's probably what I'm trying to support. Yeah, great work. Thank you. And I think that explains why we feel so values aligned at Farm Owners Academy with with what you and your team do, Tony. So thank you for that. And just so that people get to hear it from you, could you just give our listeners a snapshot of Catapult Wealth, your team? Um, yep your capabilities just so that they get to hear that firsthand rather than from me? Yeah, no, look, at, I mean, we're obviously a traditional financial planning firm in Adelaide where um, yeah, we look after particularly specialised in retirement planning. So we're helping pre-retirees, retirees work out what that 30-year, 40-year journey looks like. Um, in terms of our capabilities around farming is that because we've got offices in regional areas all over South Australia and because we, we, we like travelling to Tumby Bay and, and I was down at Padthaway the other week and things like that, is that we try and engage with people on that succession front. But coming to the table probably with either a, probably one or two roles. One is, a I call it a quarterback role where we're trying to 
help mould these plans I talked about earlier together. Or sometimes I come in as a, I'll call it a representative of a family member. Some family members ask me, go, Tony, we're already having succession planning conversations with the accountant lawyer. Can you just sit in my corner and just help me understand and ask good questions and just be my advocate? And, and I've often played that role as well, which I quite enjoy. So as long as we're having better conversations and um, I'm, I'm all for it. Perfect. Tony, um, I think if anyone's earned a two-month trip with family <laughs> um, to Streaky Bay and Ellie Beach and everywhere in between, um, it's you. Congratulations on all you've done. It's just been great to connect with you again and, yeah, make sure you don't work too hard while you're um, enjoying a road trip. Thank you, buddy. I appreciate you having me today. Great. And thanks so much for your time. Thanks, everyone. As always, wonderful to catch up with Tony um, and to reflect on the economy, on the finance sector, um, on wealth creation, on intergenerational transfer, succession, um, and everything in between. So good to have Catapult Wealth part of the FOA project and part of our community. And as um, as you might get the impression, we recommend Tony and his team highly. Thanks so much for your time. Enjoy the next few weeks and we'll check in with you again shortly. Bye for now.